Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, and uh, I want to start a little bit um, different this morning, and it, it really is a simple question, but one I think that has great ramifications on our practical everyday life. What is the greatest need in the church today? And as you're turning to Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at one verse to start in just a moment, but I want to ask you that. What is the greatest need in the church today? If you're here visiting with us for the very first time, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we want to encourage you in that way, and thank you for giving your time this morning. If you are a follower of Christ, uh, then this question carries a little bit different weight. If you're here and you don't know Christ, then you would look at me and say, I have no idea what the greatest need in the church is because I don't even, I don't even know really what the church is. I don't know what you're even asking. I don't know Jesus. And then maybe you would this morning consider what it means to know Christ. Maybe you would begin to pray about, God, my greatest need is not what the church needs, my greatest need is salvation. My greatest need is to know Christ personally. But as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, and as part of his church, what is the greatest need in the local church? Some people would say it's a building, a place to worship, a place to come together. We're so blessed with this location, with this building. And we had to go for a time without this building. Some of you were here when that was going on. Some of you are with us in the township hall down the road, uh, meeting together in a room that literally held 70 chairs max. I think it was 70, 72 chairs. I can't remember exactly. Uh, some of you remember we had to set up and tear down every Sunday. Pastor Keith and I would go up on Saturday night, sometimes 9, 10 o'clock at night, set up everything, chairs, a stage, a portable screen, projector, the whole nine. We would do worship, and then Sunday afternoon we would tear it all apart. And put it all away for the next week. So some people would say it's a building. It's a place to come together. It's good to have a building. But is that the greatest need of the church? Some would say having the word of God in the church is the greatest need in the church. And I believe it is one of the most vital and valuable resources God has ever given us. Is his word which is holy and perfect. And grows our faith Romans ten seventeen says. But I believe what we're going to talk about this morning is even greater than that because without the need that we really have, we won't even understand this. The greatest gift that God has ever given us to the church, it's also the greatest need in the church. Isn't that amazing? Our greatest need is also the very gift that God already gave to us through the church. Look at Acts chapter 13 all the way down in verse 52. The book of Acts is an amazing historical book. It recounts all the, the acts of the apostles in the early church from uh, the apostle Peter and all of his great work that he did in the early part of the church, the day of Pentecost and all those things. The church grew by thousands and thousands. The apostle Paul is converted in the book of Acts. We read about his missionary journeys and all that God used him to do. The book of Acts was written by Luke. And it's a great account of all the things that happened to the church early on. Now, I will say this. There are some things, I believe, in the book of Acts that were only supposed to happen in the book of Acts because it was meant as a transition from no church to the beginning of the church. But there are plenty of things in the book of Acts that are meant to be repeated, meant to happen over and over again. And what we're going to talk about this morning is one that I believe we must grapple with, understand, and apply this morning. Look at Acts chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. 
the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. What is the greatest need in the church today? What is the greatest need in your personal Christian life today? I can tell you right now the greatest need in the church is not a bigger budget. It's not the greatest need in the church. The greatest need in the church today is not air conditioning. Gasp, I know, right? Some of you are like, uh, you don't understand, brother, I really like air conditioning. <laughs> Who doesn't like it? If you don't like air conditioning, you're lying to yourself and to everyone else, okay? We all love it. It's fine. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The greatest need in the church today is not the best praise band. Can I say that again? That's not the greatest need in the church. The greatest need in the church is not the best musicians that play week in and week out and praise God for the musicians we have and the singers we have. I mean, the one this morning, that singer, she was awesome. <laughs> Never heard better. It's cute, too. Um, that's not the greatest need in the church. Hey, here's the greatest need in the church is not good programs. Big programs. Expensive programs. It's not the greatest need in the church. Those are good and fine, and it's great to have programs, and we have great kids' programs and ministries, and all of that's good. And the greatest need in the church is the infilling and the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Because I'm telling you this, without that, you can build a crowd, you can build a building, you can have programs, you can have great music, you can do all of that. But man, without the Holy Spirit, it's all pointless. And what's the difference between you coming here on a Sunday morning and going to the gym to hang out with friends during the week or spend time there? Or going to the coffee shop to spend time with friends there? Or to just get together with family and friends at a barbecue like you're going to do this week? What's the difference? And what's the difference about this time right now? It's the Holy Spirit of God infusing this time as we worship together and he fills us with his joy. Now some of you would say, hey, you know what, brother? We're the church everywhere we go. Everywhere we go, we're the church. Yes, you take the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. Praise God that you do because you need him everywhere you go. But do you know in the book of Acts and especially in the New Testament, there's a special emphasis put on when God's people gather together, no matter if it's in a building or by a riverside, and begin to praise and exalt the name of Christ and to demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit that he gives us. You are the church everywhere you go. But I feel like in the church age today, in the time and place we are in our culture, we've used that as kind of the other end of the spectrum. Well, because I'm the church everywhere I go, which, by the way, the church is almost always used exclusively as the gathering of the people. When it says we are the church, it's referring to collectively. You are the church individually, yes, because you have the Holy Spirit of God within you. But most of the time when it says the church, it's referring to a gathering of the body of Christ. But we use that to kind of say, well, I don't have to go to the church because I am the church. And when you read a book like the book of Acts, you know what I find? That's a really foreign idea. Let me just say that again. When you read the book of Acts, the historical account of the first church, you know what I find not in there? Is that thought. And I know you're like, man, this is the 4th of July weekend, brother. You're kind of laying it on kind of thick. I mean, come on. We all got, I know there's a lot of people out of town. I'm not talking about once in a while traveling away, vacations. You've got to do that. What I'm saying is the heart of the worshiper, the heart of the believer. And when we gather together and the word of God is open and the Holy Spirit begins to move among us, there's a beautiful moment where we can actually experience the presence of God like never before. 
And then when you're in your devotions through the week, he's affirming or confirming things that you experience with the body of Christ as you go through the week. It's beautiful. And I want to walk through that passage. I want to talk about what does this church look like, this church where the disciples were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. By the way, you're going to see a connection between those two things. Many of you know Christians. Maybe your whole life you grew up in the church. You know people that are followers of Christ. But what I ask you this, and you don't have to answer out loud, but how many of you would say you genuinely know Christians that are literally full of joy? Some of you know Christians that are the opposite of the head. Right? They're like the other end of the spectrum. They're never joyful, ever. Like, here's a million dollars. Well, now i got to pay taxes on it. You know these people. You know them. Okay? But man, we, we need to understand, what is the Holy Spirit really going to do and want to do in our lives? I believe it's so much more than maybe what we've realized. And I'm not saying this is new truth, by the way. But this is a truth that I pray that I will understand better and that you and I together as a church will understand better. The greatest need in the church is the Holy Spirit. Look there at Acts chapter 13 as we continue. We're going to go up a little bit here. And I want to talk about how did this church get here? How did this church get here? Uh, this church in Acts chapter 13 is the church of Antioch. The church of Antioch. I purposely didn't tell you that yet because some of us here, the church of Antioch, oh, well, pff, I mean, they were first called Christians at Antioch. They were like super Christians. So, of course, they were full of joy in the Holy Spirit. Some of you would even say this, well, it's kind of a new church in the, in the book of Acts. This is a fairly new church that's growing and developing. It's a new church plant. Well, of course, they're going to be excited and on fire. They're new Christians. But man, when reality sets in and when they start living life, they'll realize it's just a flash in the pan. Life's tough and, you know, Christianity's not easy. I 100% agree with those statements that life is tough and Christianity's not easy. But if you are under the mindset that because you've been saved so long, you don't have that same fire, that's your fault, not God's. Man, remember when you were first saved? If you're a Christian, again, if you don't know Christ... I pray that you'll be praying right now and just saying, God, I mean, just show me yourself. But as I look around the room, most of us are followers of Christ, or at least I, you've expressed that to me. So if you know Christ, remember back to when you were first saved. Everybody do this for a minute. And I know I struggle to do this because it's, you know, 11, 14. And if I tell you to do this, some of you are going to be like, <clears throat> right? Because you were up late because of the fireworks, which we talked about already. Okay? I want you to close your eyes for a second. Everyone do this. And if you know Christ is your Savior, I want you to think back to the very moment you received Christ. Maybe you were at a church service. Maybe you were led to Christ by a parent, a family member, a friend. Maybe it was next to a bedside. Maybe it was in a bedroom. Maybe it was at a vacation Bible school. Maybe it was in Sunday school or junior church. Just think for a moment when you were first came under that realization that you needed a Savior. That your sins had separated you from a holy God and you realized Christ died for you personally and you put your faith in him and him alone. I want you to try to remember, what did you feel? When that reality and that conscious decision was made to place your faith in Christ, what, what came over you? What were your thoughts immediately following that? I want you to look at me. Man, we got to get back to that. I don't know about you. The first thoughts I had were, this is too good to be true. 
That's really what I thought. I was like, okay, there's no way that saying that prayer and believing this truth is going to wash away all of my sin. I just, man, God, I can't, is that really as simple as it is? And it took me a little while to wrestle with that. But I'm telling you, once we realize this is tr truth of the gospel, that believing in Christ is the forgiveness of sins, not going to church and doing good things. We're not, we don't work for our salvation. We work what? Out of our salvation. But man, what did you feel? What did you think? What did you experience? Those first few weeks and maybe a couple months when all of a sudden it was like you just couldn't read your Bible enough. If some of you guys know what I'm talking about? Just nod your head if you know what I'm talking about. You just wanted to be around Christians and you just loved being around other believers and talking about the things of God and just, man, you were just so excited. Every person you saw was a potential convert. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Man, you were witnessing to everybody. You just couldn't keep it in. Some of your neighbors were like, oh my goodness, what has happened to this guy? But man, everything, and there was this joy. There was this understanding that, man, Christ died and rose again for me. And when I leave this place, I will not have to wonder, I hope I go to heaven. I hope I this. I hope I that. I know that I will stand before him. There was a joy. But then what happened? See, here's what happens. At some point in our Christian walk, something happens. Internally, externally. And all of a sudden, we start to lose that joy. And we start to fire, the fire starts to go down a little bit. It goes down a little bit. It goes down a little bit. We start listening to the voices of the world, the voices of the flesh, the opinions of others. No, no, come on, man, you can't do that. I told you guys, when I first felt called to be a pastor, I told this one person who went to a Christian school, who actually was the first influence I had for the church, more or less. I don't even know if she was saved at the time. When I told her I was saved, she couldn't believe that. She said, I don't, you don't strike me as a Christian. And then when I told her I was going to be a pastor, I wanted to be a, a pastor, preacher, something one day, she said, that's just not you. You can't do that. Christian, going to church, Christian school can't do that. And you know what? I had a choice to make. Am I going to listen to that voice or am I going to listen to his voice? And every time I listen to my voice, their voices, someone else, the world's voice, guess what happened? My joy would go down. My fire would go down. I would think I'd be okay. And then discouragement and disappointment. I'm telling you guys, do not discount this Story in the book of Acts says, well, that was just that church and those Christians, and they're different, and I'm, you just don't know. You just don't get it. And I'm telling you, the greatest need in our lives and the greatest need in the church is not a bigger budget. It's not a bigger building. It's not better programs. It's not a better this or a better that or better this. or that. It's the Holy Spirit's infilling and his power over our church. And if that happens and continues to happen, as I believe it already has, man, then then I believe we'll see what the church can really be in this community. So how did this church get here? Go back up to verse 42. Acts chapter 13, verse 42. <clears throat> and we're going to read verses 42 through 49. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious uh, proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. 
Man, I don't know about you, but just think about this for a second. Basically, the whole city came out to hear Paul preach. You know what I think about? I mentioned before I was watching for a little while there those old Billy Graham sermons, those big crusades he would do. You see these arenas just packed full of people, thousands of people coming to hear this man preach. I kind of think about that when I see these words. I just imagine this outdoor area, and people are just crowded around. They just want to hear the word of God. They're so hungry for the truth. By the way, can I give you a little bit of encouragement? And this is an encouragement. Nothing's changed in that regard. People still genuinely want to hear the truth. They just don't know what the truth is. So when you start preaching the word, they might be like, I don't know about that. But I'm telling you, if the Spirit of God is moving and you begin to share the word of God, people will hear. People will listen. Don't let the lies of Satan tell you that you can't and you couldn't and you shouldn't. Because you can, you should, and you need to share the word of God with those around you. Next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, this is crazy, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it is necessary that the word of God should have first been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles." For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I like that phrase in there, ordained as to eternal life. You know what that means? They came to know Christ as Savior. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Here we see that Paul arrives to minister to this area. And as he gets there, the first thing he does is he goes to the synagogue and he shares it with the Jewish people. Verses 17 through 41 of Acts 13. 17 through 41. He's in the synagogue and he's debating with the Jews. He's convincing them or trying to convince them of the truth of the word of God to show them that Christ really is the Messiah. When you get into verses 42 through 49, you see at the beginning, how are the Jews responding to Paul's message? Hey, we want to hear more. Come on back next week. We want to hear more. There's this seeming interest in the message. But then when you get down to when the people show up, how did the Jews react when the people showed up? Man, we ain't never had a crowd like this. Competition, envy, jealousy. Man, we're not the focal point. Everyone's not looking at us and talking about us. They want to come hear this babbler preach about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, we don't like that. So they begin to blaspheme and kind of contradict the message and try to disrupt the meeting and the service. And I love what the Word of God says, that Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. You know what that means? They got deep and they got strong. And they said, we're not going anywhere. It's necessity that we preach the Word of God to these people. It's not an option. I don't know why we do this. I do this in my own Christian life at times. We read Acts 1-8 as though it's an option. Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses. We read it as, and I should be his witness. And why do we do that? Because we don't like the reality that Christ says, no, 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 there's not an option in it. If you're a follower of Christ, you're going to be my witness. You're going to testify of me. He says that to the disciples, and he says, you're supposed to go to the, all the world, to all the regions. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. 
By Acts chapter 7, where are the disciples? Jerusalem. And then this guy Stephen is martyred for his faith. And in Acts chapter 8 opens up this way. And all of them dispersed due to the persecution. Do you know why Jesus told them you will be my witnesses to all these areas? Because Jesus knew Acts chapter 8 was coming and he knew they would disperse. But do you notice he didn't tell them how he knew that? He didn't tell them the persecution was coming? He told them persecution was coming, but not that persecution specifically. Because he knew if he told them in Acts chapter 1, they wouldn't be ready for it, and they would leave before Acts chapter 8. Man, our God is so good, and he's so loving, and he's so gracious, and all he says is, I just want you to be my witness. And Paul says, it's a necessity. I don't even have an option in the matter, because I know the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of salvation. Because it is the power of salvation, I must tell others. I can't not tell others. And so he tells them, I I have to do this. And as a result of him being bold and understanding the necessity to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Gentiles understood, believed, received Christ, and had a great result as far as their faith. Paul is also... Not only a great missionary, preaches the word dynamically. We read in this text, he's actually forced out of the area. Let that sink in for a moment. Everything I just said is true. This region is being soaked with the gospel because the apostle Paul and Barnabas went and did what God called them to do. And as a result, they have to leave. Look at verse 50. But the Jews stirred up. See, they're still not going away. They see this great miracle take place. All these people receive Christ, and they're still focused on what? Themselves and what they get out of it. They stir up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. Expelled them out of their coasts. You know, when we do the work of God, Sometimes we think it's supposed to be easy. That any sign of struggle or persecution must mean we're not doing something right. The Apostle Paul did everything right and he's forced to leave. He's kicked out. And so how does the church respond? Think about the young church he just planted. The young believers that have just, I mean, literally getting their feet wet. How do they respond to this? How do they understand what's happening here? Their charismatic leader and teacher is gone. How will they do the work of God without this dynamic preacher to get up in front and tell everybody what the Word of God says? Without the big draw of the crowds, without the clout that the Apostle Paul had in the marketplace in public square. They also lost their friend and brother. They may feel abandoned, uncertain, fearful, full of doubts and how to move forward. Can I just ask you a question? You don't have to raise your hand. You can just... In your heart, raise your hand, I guess. Anybody in here ever feel kind of like doubt? Unsure how to move forward? Uncertain of what tomorrow holds? And how do I take this next step? These guys were in that boat. They had no idea what was going to happen. By the way, if they're coming after Paul and Barnabas, who also are they going to come after? The church. Don't read this as though once Paul and Barnabas are gone, the church is going to be fine. I believe the church is going to get some persecution here as well. So how does the church respond? How do they turn about this uncertain season? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 52 where we started. 
And it's in that context. Now I want you to read it, and I want you to really think about what we just said. And the disciples, these new converts, were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Man, how in the world? Your, your leader, the one that planted your church, and you come to know Christ, and you're so excited, and you're so on fire, and everything's great, and just like that, he's gone. Man, what do we do now? But we don't read that. We read about they had the Holy Spirit of God, and so you know what? They were okay. They had joy. I love what Jim Cimbala writes about this passage. Jim Cimbala says this about this amazing report of the church. And I want to remind you, this is Jim's words, not mine. What a rebuke, he says, to our modern rationalization for our sour spirits and depressed attitudes. If these new believers could so rejoice in the God of their salvation, then what could be our problem, he asks. But, what is, but that is what the Holy Spirit is all about. He can overcome hostile environments and fill us again and again with joy. He helps us swim against the strongest tide. What a powerful question and assertion he, he comes to. If this new church and all this persecution could still be full of joy, then what could our problem be? Why are we, as believers in America today, seemingly no different than the unbelievers in the areas of sour spirits, as he says? This idea of woe is me-ism. Nothing ever works out. I'm not happy with where I am in life. I just, I don't want to get up in the morning. And he says, what's the, why? Why the difference? And I truly believe that as the Holy Spirit of God is indwelt us, we have a gift given to us that we can utilize to see God's glory manifested in our lives. I love what the prophet Isaiah said about the joy of the Spirit. Listen to Isaiah's words in Isaiah 51, 11. The Lord by his Spirit will bring the joy that cannot be explained. That's powerful. The Lord by his Spirit will bring the joy that cannot be explained. Now let me just say this, joy and happiness aren't synonymous. They're not the same thing. You may go into a trial, a struggle, or persecution and not be happy about it, but have joy in the Lord. How can I have joy in struggle and trial? Because I realize the struggle and the trial is not greater than my Savior. I realize that this is temporary, Paul says. This is short-lived, but man, there is an eternal life that is awaiting me, that is ex I'm experiencing now, and is awaiting me when I leave this place. And that's how we can keep focus. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, brings to our remembrance those things. So what's the problem? I mean, are we truly experiencing that today, that fullness of joy, as these new believers experience in the book of Acts? I want to look at one more passage. I want to walk through this, and then we're going to be dismissed. But I want to encourage you in the book of Luke. Go over to Luke chapter 24. And I want to make a connection between the disciples in Antioch and the early disciples, the followers of Christ, following the resurrection of Jesus. Luke chapter 24 and start in verse 49. Thank you so much for bringing your Bible today, whether you have it 
physically in your lap or on a device. Uh, we do appreciate you bringing your Bibles. I want to look at the Word of God together with you uh, so you for yourself can see these words and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you so you can apply them to your life. Look at verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. What was the greatest need for the early disciples, for the very first, really, foundations of the church? What was the greatest need that Christ tells them is coming? It is the power of God. It is the very power of God. Jesus told his disciples to wait for the power from him, from above. The power was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The power to overcome the worries and stresses of this present world and to work as God leads, the ability, the power to overcome the sin in this world comes from the Holy Spirit of God. He tells his disciples, you cannot and you will not be able to do what I need you to do to begin the movement that is the church without my power, without my Holy Spirit. And the reality is 2,000 years later, the greatest need in the church today is still the power of God through the Holy Spirit. It is no different. We still cannot and will not do what he's called us to do without his power, without his Holy Spirit. Now let me remind you, we can do a lot in our own accord. You can do a lot of things without the Holy Spirit. You can be very successful in the world without the Holy Spirit. And how do I know that? Because there are plenty of wicked, wicked people who have no relationship with Jesus Christ and are very successful in the world's eyes. We've been studying the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. And I encourage you, uh, if you have an opportunity to be here on Wednesday nights, it's been a great study. But early on, we were looking through the family lines of Cain and Seth. Now, if you don't know, uh, Seth was given by God to replace Abel. And as he gave Seth to Adam and Eve to replace that son and to carry the line of blessing, we see, we read about the, the family trees, the genealogies of those two individuals. And in one line, the line of Cain, we see time after time talking about great music, great art, great culture, great worldly relevance, city builders, architects are listed in the family line of Cain. And we read that and we think, wow. I mean, look how greatly they impacted their world. And all you read about Seth is that they called on the name of the Lord. And when you read those two, you think, wow, Cain's family is much more successful, impactful than Seth's. And the professor at, Gen or at Dallas Theological Seminary who was teaching the class on Genesis said this, worldly greatness, greatness is always swifter than spiritual greatness. Worldly greatness is always swifter than spiritual greatness. And so when you read about all these things the Holy Spirit can do through us, you can be worldly successful without the Holy Spirit, but you cannot and will not do the things that God has for his church and for his kingdom as an individual or as a corporate church, as a gathered together body. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. Without the abiding presence of, of Christ in our lives. And by the way, how do we abide with Christ? Christ is seated where? On the right hand of the throne of the Father, right? The Bible tells us that. Where's God the Father? He's on his throne, right? 
Can we just take a moment and praise God that he's on his throne? That he never gets up to worry and stress and the pace back and forth? That he's on his throne no matter what happens in our environment, our political influences, or our atmosphere? Whatever happens, he doesn't get up and go, oh, the stock market crashed. Never, I never saw that coming. What are we going to do, Jesus? How are we going to fix this? So if God is on his throne and Jesus is on the right hand of the throne of the Father praying for us, then how in the world are we abiding in Christ practically every single day? Because he gave us a beautiful gift. The only agent active on planet Earth right now for the church is the Holy Spirit. Read the New Testament. It's the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us at the moment of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit of God that leads, guides, directs, convicts of sin and righteousness. It's the Holy Spirit of God that gives us the gifts for the church. By the way, I'm always amazed by this when people say, I don't have to go to church to be the church. But if the church is supposed to exercise spiritual gifts, and the only place we can do that is in the church, I don't know how we can accomplish that goal. I mean, the Holy Spirit of God is the active agent for God the Father and for Jesus Christ. He is actively working in and through us. Why? To accomplish the will of the Father that Jesus is proclaimed and the gospel is given. Yes, at salvation we have the Spirit given to us. I truly believe we are indwelt with the Spirit of God at the moment we receive Christ. He seals us unto the day of redemption. By the way, that means you can never lose your salvation. Amen? Okay, a couple of you are excited about that. The rest of you must be perfect, so you never have to worry about sinning and losing anything. Um, I personally, as somebody that struggles with temptation because I'm human, I'm so thankful that if and when I sin, I don't lose my salvation because he seals me unto the day of redemption. Amen? Okay, a little bit better. We'll keep working on that. But there's an amazing verse in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. We're not going to turn there for time's sake, but Paul says to the church of Ephesus, but be ye filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, how is it that I can be indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, completely given the Spirit of God full, and yet have to be filled with Him daily and continually, as, as the Apostle Paul says? Because being filled with the Spirit isn't so much about getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's about giving the Holy Spirit more of me. The whole verse says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Ghost. When I'm drunk with wine, I'm giving my influence, my control of my body, my thoughts, my actions over to the substance. And the Apostle Paul says, No, 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 no. Rather than that, give the control of everything that you have and that you are to the Holy Spirit and watch Him do a great work. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. We have him at the moment of salvation. But can I ask you a question? Are you engaging him in dialogue? In prayer? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you looking for ways for him to lead, guide, and direct you? Are you allowing him to take control of your day? Are you surrendering your wants and your plans to him? And to say, what do you have for me today? Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. The reason why we don't experience his filling in our lives. Quench not the Spirit. Quench not the spirit. the spirit. Quenching the Spirit here means to neglect or resist the gift we have been given. Can I say that again? To, resi- or to quench the Spirit means to resist or neglect the gift we have been given given. Do I need the gift again? No, I already have it. What do I need to do? Realize I have the gift, receive it, walk in the Word of God, 
allow the Spirit to lead God and direct, and I'll experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so guess what? My whole day is different. My whole week is different. Are struggles going to come? Yeah, absolutely, because that's life. But man, when we're walking in the Spirit and we're not quenching the Spirit, we're experiencing that joy, that peace. What did he tell his disciples in John 14, 27? Peace I leave with you. Not peace as the world gives it. That's worldly peace. That's financial security, quote-unquote. That's job security, quote-unquote. That's your, what you have, the stuff that somehow gives you a sense of pride. Look at the kingdom I've built. Do you realize that kingdom can be taken just like that? Even those of you that own your own homes, don't pay your property tax and see what happens. Who owns that home? I'm just saying, I mean, we have all these false senses of security. Like, oh, no, no, I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I do my own thing. I'm, I built myself. No! And there's only one truly secure person who has placed their life in Jesus Christ and him alone. And he is your security. Because he's the only thing that can't be taken away. Man, your very life can be taken away, but you still have Jesus. Your family can be taken away, but you still have Jesus. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. He seals us. He binds us. But man, we, re we reject that gift. We neglect that gift. Because we think that somehow we have enough power in ourselves to do what we need to do for God. Let's go back to Luke 24. The greatest need for the early disciples was the power of God in their lives, which was coming through the Holy Spirit. Look at Luke 24, verses 52 and 53. Jesus leaves. Now let me just ask you here. If you're the disciples and Jesus ascends, he's gone, what emotions would you be feeling? Like somebody tell me real quick, out loud, what's an emotion you might feel if your Savior that you've just spent three and a half years with that died on a cross for your sins and rose again and you want to just be with him and he leaves, what's some emotions you might be feeling? Just be honest. Fear, absolutely. Okay, what else? Anger. I love anger. Thank you for that one. Why would you leave me? <laughs> Sadness. What else? Devastation. Okay, absolutely. I'm just, my whole, everything's rocked. Like what do we do? Interesting little study, if you have time this week. Read about the disciples' reactions after Jesus dies on the cross, before he resurrects, and then come back to Luke and look at what happens after the ascension, after they know he's already resurrected. And look at the, and compare the attitudes of the disciples. Compare the emotions of the disciples. The point being, you're going to come to a conclusion, I hope, that the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything. But do a little study on that. You can read in John chapter uh, 20 and 21 about that encounter before the ascension, before they really realize that he's uh, resurrected. And then we can read here in verse 52. How did they respond? Jesus is ascended, but yet resurrected. Look at verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Where's the fear? Devastation. Where's the pain? Where's the anger? Where's the emotional outburst? Where's the, where's the concern and the uncertainty? It's gone. Man, what, what in the world happened here? How can they say in verse 15, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem. Why'd they go back to Jerusalem? Why'd they go to Jerusalem? 
because that's what he told him to do, right? He said, go wait in the city. Tarry there. Wait there until I send you my power. So they were first obedient. A lot of times we worship and we're not obedient. I don't think we can do that consistently and be fruitful in our Christian life. We can worship and be disobedient. But man, it's amazing. When we're obedient, we seem to always worship. You ever notice that? We come and we worship. We're great at worshiping. Human nature is to worship, by the way. You worship yourself. You worship your job. You worship your family. You worship all kinds of things. Your bank account. We worship naturally because God put that in us, I believe, to worship him. That's why he had to say, thou shalt have no other gods before me because he knew we would be internally desiring to worship something. And without Christ, we worship the wrong things. So we can worship and be disobedient, but man, it seems like when we're obedient to him and to his word, we worship as a result. Because we understand the fullness of the truth of what he's given us. And they worshiped him. They were obedient to him. And then it says this, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Great joy. What brought them such joy? The truth is they knew that Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore they knew if he was right about that, then he's right about him saying he's coming back and he's giving us his power so we don't have to worry because we have the truth of the word of God and we experienced it we believe it we have faith in it and they went back to Jerusalem they had a new fire a revived hope in Christ and they waited but this waiting isn't an inactivity but a patient waiting on the Lord it says they were constantly in the temple praising and blessing God side note where did Jesus tell them to go to the temple and worship When does Jesus say, now go back to the temple and worship me constantly until I send you my power? Cricket? Cricket? He doesn't, right? He never says that. He says, just go back and wait for the power. What did they do out of their own choosing? Just as a reaction of themselves, they said, man, how can we not worship him? So what's the definition for continually, constantly? Is that 24-7? Is that every day? Is that six hours a day, three hours a day, eight hours a day, one hour a day? Man, it says they went to the temple courts and they just worshiped and praised and worshiped and praised. And they didn't do it because Jesus said to was a law to gain his favor. They did it just out of sheer reaction to the great joy the Holy Spirit had given them. It's amazing to me. You see, these disciples here, before this encounter, Jesus gives them a filling of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. Not in Luke, but we read it in John, that he gave them, he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. A whole different kind of uh, revelation of the Lord. Up to that point, people were filled with the Spirit for a time, a purpose, a task, a king, a prophet, a priest would be given the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why David cries out in his repentant psalm, take not your spirit from me. Because it was, unfor- it was foreign to them to have the Spirit all the time. They understood that God could take it and give it. It was just his will. He was sovereign. He could do what he wanted. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to give you my Spirit and it's going to stay, then that's powerful. So they had the Spirit here. And that's, that's why I believe they had this great joy. They go through this whole experience of praising him and worshiping. And they ended up in the upper room as Christ said they would, waiting on, that, waiting on him. And then the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. So what's the key here? What's the key here? What can we apply to our lives from the disciples? Not only do we need the power of God, but we need to wait for the Spirit of God. The pattern of waiting on the Lord in prayer and worship together and then receiving the power to go and do what he has called us to do is all throughout Scripture. 
we too can spend time corporately and individually in prayer, waiting on his filling and waiting on his direction, but to watch him do great things in our lives. Instead, unfortunately and sadly, we rush out into our days, we rush out into our weeks with a five-minute devotion, and we're done for the day. And then we wonder, why can I not get through a day? Man, listen, struggles come every day, unannounced, unexpected. You ever see those commercials where the people are sitting out with the contractor? I don't even know what it's for. I just find them hilarious. I don't even know what the product is or what they're trying to sell. And the contractor's like, yeah, we're going to take that wall out. It's like $30,000 over budget. We really don't need to. We're just going to do it just to mess you up. Have you guys seen this commercial? Okay. And they're like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's good. And the whole point is, like, problems aren't announced to you before they happen. Like, it's not like it's expected or planned. So, man, how do we get through a day of unexpected struggle and trial that could come our way? We start with the infilling and the waiting on the Holy Spirit to say, I just want your presence in my life. Show me. Lead me. Guide me. Give me wisdom and courage on how to face this day. Decisions, conversations. People are going to say things to you, and you need to decide, how am I going to respond? Man, don't wait till you're in the conversation. Make the decision before you get to the conversation. Lord, give me wisdom that I'll speak things that would praise your name, that would be an answer for the hope that lies in me, that I would give grace to the hearers, the Bible says, instead of just filling up our days with useless chatter and endless babbling. Flesh-filled words that we think accomplish things, and they don't do anything but frustrate us and frustrate others. But man, when we pray and we say, God, I just want your presence in my life. I just want your Holy Spirit in my life. Why is it we don't see some of the things that we read about in the early church? Maybe it's we've allowed all these other voices to get so loud and we've quenched or resisted this voice inside that we aren't really hearing him like we used to. So what do we do? We wait. We pray. We say, God, I just want to hear from you. Like whatever and, and however, just speak to me. To be honest with you, that's why I love our GAP ministry. And I hope more and more of you will utilize that ministry. GAP ministry is every Sunday morning we'll spend from 9.30, is it 9.30? To like 10.20. There's a room right down here. It's open. All you got to do is go in. You can sit down. You can spend the whole time in there, five minutes in there, ten minutes in there. And you know what that room's for? Before you come in here to worship, just spend some time to just sit before the Lord and say, I just want to know you today more than I did before I got here. I want your filling in this place. I want you to fill others. I want your word to go forth. And I truly believe we will never see what God really has for our church until we as individuals and as a church unite together to say, we just want the filling of the Holy Spirit and his presence to be real in our lives. And when we experience that, guess what will happen? That great joy. Man, I've always been amazed. How do people describe the church in our world today? Do they say it with things like great joy? Man, there's just something different about that church. Or do they say things like, you got to hear this pastor. You got to hear this band. You got to see this program. You got to see this musical. You got to see this. Now listen, let me just say this. If you're inviting someone to our church, and we're doing something like Unity Fest, and they don't know Christ, and they're not familiar with the church, and they're kind of unchurched, then yeah, you need to be like, hey, we have a Unity Fest. It's going to be inflatables. Nothing wrong with that. Man, if you're talking to someone that has a connection with what the church should be, why do we start with the stuff, the fringe stuff, which is all good, but not by saying, man, I just love our church because when I come into our church, I just know that God is with us. I just love sensing his presence in our worship and his presence in the preaching, and it's just, I just know God is there. 
Why is that usually so far down the list of things that we use to describe the church? Maybe because we're not really experiencing that in our own lives, and so we can't connect with it when we come here. So we keep it shallow and surface because that's all we want to do. And how is God dealing with you in this regard? What is the greatest need in the church today? The power from the Holy Spirit in our lives and experiencing the great joy he brings. We can experience joy in all circumstances. And our testimony to the church, community, and homes is that it is not us, it is him. One of the most powerful verses in this regard I find is in Zechariah 4, 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We have been given the power and ability to overcome sin by his spirit. To understand the word of God by his spirit. To pray, even when we don't know what to pray, by his spirit. To understand repentance and forgiveness of sins by his spirit. One last encouragement from the word of God before we pray. How did the Apostle Paul describe the kingdom of God? How did the Apostle Paul describe the kingdom of God? Listen to his words to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, It's not ritual and habit and obligation and religious works. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you experiencing his joy today? Are you walking and living in great joy, the abundance of joy? I'm not asking are you happy about where you are? Are you happy with your circumstances? Because you can be very unhappy but still have joy when you realize my God's greater. My salvation is greater than this. Because Jesus rose again, is coming again, and will rise me from the dead one day. I'm trusting in him because he is trustworthy. So my joy doesn't come from the circumstances. And if your bank account dictates your joy, you're going to be pretty disappointed. If your family dictates your joy, you're going to be pretty disappointed. If your home dictates your joy, disappointment. Your car, disappointment. But man, when you're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you and guide you and direct you, there is this joy that comes from his presence. And by the way, that's one of the reasons he was given to us, to keep us focused on the greater joy, which is Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to ask us to bow our heads. We're going to have a word of prayer. And as you bow right there where you are, our invitation is going to be very simple. Here's all it is. I want you to respond to God this morning. And if you know Christ is your Savior, and if you're being honest, you would say, you know what? I don't really have that joy you're talking about. I believe I have it in Christ, but I've quenched the Spirit in my life. I've quenched His speaking in my life. I've allowed sin. I've allowed others. I've allowed fear. I've allowed doubt. I've allowed skepticism, whatever. I've allowed all these other things to quiet the voice of the Spirit. I know He's there because I know Christ. You see, the Bible says that if you are... God's, if he has you as a son and daughter, you have his spirit. And so you have the spirit of God within you. You know you're saved. You know you're going to heaven when you die. You know you're eternally secure. But it's the daily life. It's the Monday through Friday stuff that you just find yourself slipping out of that joy. Now listen, some of you here, as you continue to pray, some of you here struggle in this area greater than others. And this is not to discourage you, to upset you, or to offend you. 
Some of you, when I use the word depressed, it's not because you had a bad hair day. It's genuinely something that just hangs over you every day. It's a weight on your shoulders. And I'm here to tell you there's no easy answer. But I will promise you this. If you will give it over to the Lord and you cry out and you say, God, I just want your filling. Even in the midst of where you are in your circumstance, he will begin to revive that joy in you. And it's a process. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. But man, trust him more today and seek him with your whole heart. Some of you hear a bad day is what you would call depressed. It's, uh, you know, something didn't go right. I didn't get a parking spot. And you think, oh, it's just a horrible day. It's kind of surface or shallow for you. Maybe you would look deeper and say, God, help me to think bigger than today. To think bigger than this circumstance and to see your joy is long-lasting, far-reaching. Maybe you're here today and you need to cry out and say, Holy Spirit, I need you to fill me. I need you to lead God and direct me and allow me to respond. not going to sing this morning. Jeff's just going to play for us, but we're going to stand in just a moment. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just pray and seek him today. I want you to come, if he's leading you, to bend a knee at this altar and say, God, I'm tired of living in my own strength. Thank you for your spirit. I pray that I would see your spirit's power in my life, that I would experience the difference that is the Holy Spirit's control in my life. anything else. Don't focus on anything else. Don't worry about Just focus on you and the Lord right now. Do you, are you full of His Spirit? Are you seeking Him? Are you waiting on Him patiently, saying, God, I need you today? Father, may you be glorified in this time of invitation. Holy Spirit, may you lead, guide, and direct. Just fill this place. continue to pray there's nothing on the screen no need to look up here you just continue to pray there we're just going to take a couple minutes we're not going to be long if by the way if you can't stand please don't feel like you have to you can sit if it's more comfortable for you to sit and pray do that but just pray if you want to come forward come now if you want his filling like never before just come and say God I just want to know you salvation. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. If you've not experienced his joy, not experiencing his joy, maybe you want to come and say, God, restore unto me mentally the joy of my salvation. I need it again. I, I, I'm living as though I don't have it, and I know I do. So I pray you remind me of the joy that you offer. Would you come? If God is leading, would you come and just bend a knee? Say, God, I need you today. 